Good morning, church family. How's everybody doing this morning? It was, uh, so some of you might know, but I was on vacation with my family, and you know that you're blessed when as much as you enjoy vacation, you can't wait to come home and be here with family, with this church, and so I'm excited to be back. I'm energized, and I'm refreshed, and so it's great to be here with you. We had a a much-needed time as a family to disconnect from some things to connect to greater things. And the title of the message this morning is Feeling Disconnected. And my theology of ministry, the way I view the world, is deeply rooted as the Bible, as God himself is deeply rooted in relationship. I'm in a doctoral program now, and I'm going to do a project at some point, and my project is to be all in that sense of disconnectedness and the sense of restored connection. And so uh, this morning, um, I'm excited to share this word Uh, I told Pastor Sam and Jamie it's the best sermon ever, and I say that not because of me, but because of the content and because of the Word of God, amen, and it's powerful what he does in his Word. But I was realizing when I was on vacation how much I needed the break, how much I needed to disconnect in order to connect, to disconnect from my phone and to disconnect from the noise, to connect to my family, to have that time to just be myself, to connect to myself, to have a sense of, you know, take a deep breath, look around, smell the roses, to connect with him. See, I can't help but think of everything theologically, meaning I think about a situation with the question, what is this telling me about God and about my relationship to him, about my relationship to other people, to the world around me? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In other words, we have spiritual eyes. We see beyond just what's in front of us. We realize there's a meta-narrative. There's a bigger story. There's a spiritual reality. And so I'm always asking questions as I go through situations. I naturally tend to think deeply, and I'm, I'm always trying to sort of gain a perspective and I found this to be helpful, and I developed this. This is not, you know, I've, I've been able to do this over time, but I would encourage you to begin to ask the question, God, what are you teaching me here? No matter what you're going through, no matter what situation you're facing, no matter the obstacle, the struggle, or the, the blessing and the benefit, God, what can I learn here? Because see, we understand, and there's nothing wrong, I mean, we understand praying that God would change our situation and he would change our circumstance. In fact, we've said before that the first half of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is, Lord, take this cup from me. Lord, change the scenario if there's another way. But then the second part shows maturity and wisdom. The second part is, but if not, your will be done. See, it's okay to say, God, change me, change my circumstance. But if not, I know you're with me, and your will be done. So in those moments, it's helpful to go, okay, God. Even reluctantly, even sometimes, like, all right, Lord, what am I learning? What are you trying to teach me here? Give me spiritual eyes. 
Help my focus to be where it ought to be. See, the Bible tells us where our focus should be, right? And this coming week of prayer and fasting is, is meant to do just that, to focus our hearts and minds on Jesus. That's what prayer and fasting is all about, to help focus or refocus our lives upon Christ. Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And so I began to think a lot about how we've never been more connected to one another globally in the history of the world. Never ever in the history of the world have we been more connected. And yet in reality, I think we've never been more disconnected from God more disconnected from each other, and even more disconnected from the natural world, from the world around us, from getting outside. I saw a bump stick the other day, and it just said, get outside. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. When's the last time you laid down in the grass just looking at the sky? Remember when you were a kid and you do that? Or watch the sun sunrise? Disconnection and connection. I think we feel it, if we stop and think about it, we feel profound disconnection. But I think we can get so distracted and so focused on other things that life passes us by. And I think we can become numb to our disconnectedness. I think the biggest cancer facing us currently, and especially in first world countries, is we're losing what makes us human. We're losing that sense of relationship. There was an author I read once, and he said, throughout human history, there's two ways needs are met. One is through the community. You have this, I have this, you do this, we work together. And the other is through economic independence. The more resources we have, the less we need one another. We suffer relationally. See, God exists in community. The Trinity is a relationship. We're going to look at all of the problems in our lives, all the problems in the world are related to this sense of profound disconnectedness. And for all that knowledge does, for all that ability does, it will never replace relationship. We live in a time of instant communication, of the instant flow of information. News, video, images, audio can be broadcast live from almost anywhere in the world. People are quick to promote their ideas, their opinions, and their views on almost everything on social media, websites, blogs. And people spend all kinds of time and all kinds of money to entertain their followers. And here's the thing. We have an illusion that somehow that means we're connected to each other. They say 93% of communication is nonverbal. That means only 7% of communication is actually the words that we say. 93% of communication is tone or posture or facial expression. Now, we know, and especially if you're married, you know how hard it is to communicate when you're in the same room with somebody, right? How much hotter is it when most of our communication is done through text or emails? How uncivil do exchanges quickly become? 
It's hard to communicate. But when we substitute text or messaging for real interaction, it's even harder. And I don't want to spend the whole sermon describing the problem because I think you know. I think you feel it deep down inside. I read an article and it, and I don't, you know, we're literally broadcasting live on Facebook. At least we were before I started this sermon. We'll see. It suddenly disconnects. There's some whistleblowers that, that wrote articles. And they said Facebook is known for a long time that their algorithms, in other words, the programs that place things on your feed are intended to elicit a negative response. Because negative reactions emotionally print to us stronger than positive ones, which means we click that more and we go deeper into it and they monetize the platform. And so the more clicks they get, the more money they make, whether or not you get destroyed in the process. It's not like a, a moral neutral tool, and I don't, we, can, we can have a discussion about that later. I'll tell you about me personally. But it is causing more chaos and dissension, and I'm convinced that it's more harm than good. I've few times in my life taken a 30-day break, usually in January, take a month off of Facebook. The first time ever I've deleted my account. So if you, if you don't see me on there, don't Pastor Brian might have blocked me. He's not friends with me. I, I want to be friends with you. That's why I deleted my account. You wanna, if you want, I'm in my office Tuesday through Friday, all day. And people say, well, I know you're busy. You know what I'm busy doing? Meeting with somebody. Might as well be you. Pick up the phone, call me. Come to the office, visit me. Come to my house, we'll have coffee. I want real relationship. I love people. That's why I'm a pastor. I just don't want to substitute for real relationship. You know, I, I put my phone down for an hour on vacation. I try to check it a few times. I have 60 texts. Or like 25 of them are from Gary White because he sent, I'm in like 10 threads with him, so I get the same meme in every thread I'm in, right? But I look at it, and I'm like, man, I can't even, like, I can't keep up with all this. And then I've had people get mad at me, like, I texted you two weeks ago. You know what? Call me. I want to be connected. Don't hear this as I want to be less connected to you. I want to be more connected to you in real life. So for me, I'm making changes. I realize that part of my, part of my respite, part of what refreshed me on my vacation was that my, I wasn't so much a slave to my phone. And so for me, I want to invest in real relationship. And I don't want to be part of what I'm convinced more and more is a problem. You know, they say that if you want to look at how society is doing, psychologists and psychiatrists in terms of things like anxiety and depression, they look at young girls from 10 to 18. That's sort of the segment of society that everything affects more deeply. And so they look at that and they track things like suicide and they track things like anxiety and depression to get a sense of where society's going. And you usually, you know, it trends up or trends down. And in the last decade or so, there's a 30% increase in suicide and in depression and in anxiety. Because psychiatrists are saying that our brains are literally being rewired because what happens every time you get that like or you get that positive text, you get that comment, something in your brain, a chemical, dopamine, makes a positive imprint. And so kids want, everybody wants positivity and wants that, that approval. The reason I'm so excited to preach this sermon is because everything is in here. 
We're going to talk about the problem. We're going to look at the solution as the Bible describes it. This, this sermon has the potential to change the way we live. See, with a few changes, with being more intentional and focused, I think we can reconnect to the things we need to correct, reconnect to. Because here's the thing. I don't think I'm the only one that feels disconnected, distracted, overloaded, a little lost, dare I say, a little lonely. You know, sometimes the loneliest you can be is in a crowd of people. Everybody's around you and you're still deeply disconnected. So I've described this situation, and this morning I want to look biblically, and I want to find a theological basis for our problem, and I want to look at the solution. So God, we ask right now, Lord, that you meet us. We know you're here in this place. And so we ask that you soften our hearts, that you open our minds, that you open our eyes and our ears to receive from your word, God, your spirit, the only power to change us, to release us, to revive and renew us. And so, God, have your way. Open our hands to the things you want to take from us and allow us to receive the things you want to give us, God. Change us. God, change me. We come here because we love you, Lord. We want more of you. Remove the distractions. Help us to be still. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So you can turn to Genesis 3. I'm going to read through the chapters with you. We're going to find everything we need in Genesis 3. In fact, all great theology is found in Genesis. Every biblical theme, every overarching doctrine is found right there in Genesis. And I think you're going to be amazed at how much is in the third chapter of Genesis. You're going to find the origin, the initial explanation of all major biblical themes. It tells us about God, about humanity. It tells us about sin and salvation and about the church. And so together we're going to find out all we need to know about God, about our problem, about the solution, and about his grace and mercy. Because God's word is living and active church, amen? amen? It has the power to change us, has the power to renew us. I told Pastor Sam and Jamie, I'm like, this is the best sermon I've ever preached in my life, and it's not because of me. Obviously, they know that. I don't have to qualify that with them. I'm qualifying it with you. It's because of the content. It's because of how profound the word of God speaks to us right now. And so before we get in our text, I want to set the stage for you. I want to encourage you to read the first couple chapters of Genesis. But we know God created everything. We know he's a creator. That's part of his nature. And the Bible says that everything he created was good. And the full culmination of his creation is us. And he looks and he says it is very good. See, we are his prized possession. We are created by him, every human being that ever lived, in his image, and we're given a responsibility to rule over the earth, to steward it, to take care, to be caretakers of what he's given us, to care for all he's entrusted to us. The Bible says that God noticed, in fact, the first thing in the Bible, in human history, that was noted to not be good is it is not good 
for man to be alone. Man has a relationship with God. He has his needs met. He has the earth, food. And yet God looks, and the first thing he does is fix the problem of our loneliness, of our need for a helpmate, for a companion, because we're better together. He fixes our need for human relationship. This is important. Because the first problem God, the first problem God solved for us is to create a relationship to resolve the issue of loneliness. So here we are. We have a relationship with God. He's given us all we need. We have food. We have each other. And we have work to do. We lack for nothing. Pre-sin, pre-curse. So it's important that we, that we know the source of all of our problems. Because this right here is deeply psychological. It's deeply theological. It's not just a myth or a, sto- a story. This same scenario, this same heart condition informs our lives today. It's easy to read that and be like, well, what were they thinking? They had everything they needed. Yeah. What are we thinking? We have everything we need in Christ, don't we? We've been set free from sin and from death. We have relationship with him. We have the promise of eternal life. We have freedom. We have a mission. We have a job to do. We have each other. And what do we do with all of that? Too often, the same thing Adam and Eve did. We look beyond. We think we're missing out. Listen closely to this because we need to identify this in our own lives. This isn't just a story that tells us about Adam and Eve. This is a reality that tells us about the human psyche, the human spirit, the human heart. Before disobedience, there was discontentment that led to distrust. I said in the first service, I can email my notes if you want. A few people had asked for them. This is a lot of stuff here. Before disobedience, before they disobeyed the will of God, there was a discontentment and it led to a distrust. We're going to flesh all this out. See, we can say all day long, we love God and we trust him. But are we content? If I ask you right now, are you content? Are you grateful? Am I grateful or am I convinced like Adam and Eve that we're missing out? That we need more? See, we understand when the world thinks like that, the world that misunderstands it doesn't fully understand the love of God. But Paul says, how could How could the God that sent his son to die for you not want for you every good thing? How is that possible? If you were in jail and you were sentenced to die by lethal injection and I sent my child to die in your place, would you ever question my love for you? Before disobedience, there was discontentment that led to distrust And that distrust we're going to see leads to disconnection. A lot of D's to help us remember. But I'll say it again. Before disobedience, before they did what they ought not to have done, there was a discontentment. There was a sense of maybe I'm missing out. And that led to distrust. Our problem fundamentally is we just don't trust God. And that distrust leads to disconnection. So that's that's the stage set before we get into Genesis 3. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, the enemy's playbook, and we've said this before, but here's the strategy, that's a lie. And not only is that a lie, but that's the best kind of a lie because it's kind of a twist of the truth. Because good lies are, are harder to catch because they warp the truth. And so here's some, some important things to point out, that the strategy of the enemy is always to trist, twist the truth, to try and trick us, to get us to doubt what God actually says. And that's why we need to know the word of God. Because, you know, some, so many Christians fall for the lies of the enemy because they don't know the truth of God. And so it's important that we know what God says in order to be able to stand on what God says, in order to be able to call out the lies of the world and the lies of the enemy and our neighbor's opinion. I want to point out here that what the enemy is trying to do to the woman, that what the enemy always tries to do to us is get us to distrust God. That's the goal of the enemy in our lives to create confusion, distraction, distrust, and disconnection. And we need to be on guard of that. Because the best way to get us away from the things that are life-giving, that are nourishing, our word, our prayer, meeting together, serving, all the things that give life, is not to get us into some major sin that we know is bad, is to get us into the little things that aren't bad. Well, I know I'm in my Bible in six months, but I've been working a lot, and work's good. And the enemy goes, yeah, see? Or whatever it is. It's the goal of the enemy in our lives. Distract us. Take us away. Isolate us from each other. And separate us from the things that give life. Then the woman, verse 2, kind of starts out good. woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So she stood out and goes, no, 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 that's not what God said. I know the word of God. I'm going to tell you what the word of God says. You're wrong. Here's what the word of God says. Good. That's good, right? And so what is the enemy going to do? He's going to change his tactic. He does. Verse 4. Greatest lie ever told by the enemy ever in the history of the world. And we'll go back to it, verse four. You will not certainly die. The servant said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, not only now does the enemy lie again, but this is his biggest lie ever. But here he's saying, no, 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 God is wrong. God is not to be trusted. God is withholding something good from you. It's the source of all sin. All sin comes from our pride of thinking we know better than he does. I, would, I probably will do a, 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 a deeper teaching, a series. I could delve into this stuff for months. Because there is so much here. He goes from getting her to, you know, Change what the word of God says, and then that doesn't work, so he gets her to doubt the goodness of God. And he lies. And we believe his lies. I have something better. 
All of sin, I've said and I say it all the time, is a cheap substitute for something better God has for us. The enemy's saying, no, no, no. No, no, no. Well, God, what? no, no, no. You're not going to die. And in fact, he's just trying to hold out good things from you. Now, at any point, she, we, could say no. Like Jesus did. His, his fighting against the enemy was standing on the word of God, was knowing who his father was ahead of time so that when the trials came, when the difficulty came, he knew the truth. He stood on the truth. He knew his father. But if we don't know the truth of the word, if we don't have a relationship with God, then it's easier and easier for us to believe. I always pick on Oprah, poor Oprah, but what Oprah thinks, or what your neighbor thinks, or what the magazine said, Oh, what you think. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The deepest truths that exist deep down inside, fundamentally, we know this is true. Whether you're here and you believe in Jesus, whether deep down inside, we're going to see some themes that are deeply psychological that affect every one of us, every human being that's ever born, that's ever been born. If only we really trusted God. If only we could learn to be content in him. But we wander. And that wandering causes us to consider things we ought not to consider at our own peril. And then verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now instead of trusting God and what he says and what it's true, she, we, and I say we because we do it too, and I say we because Adam was there, begins to rely on her own senses and her own feelings and her own wisdom or lack thereof and her own desire. And she forgets about the truth and she forgets about what God says and she looks and she says, it doesn't look that bad. In fact, it kind of looks good. In fact, it might nourish me. It might make me wise. And so you know what we do when we're going to sin? You know what we do when we're going to make a bad choice? Hey, hey, come here. Because when I'm about to do something bad, and I know in my spirit, I'm going to feel a little less bad if I involve somebody else. See, I don't know what Adam was doing. I don't know if he was texting or if he was on Facebook, but he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. Oh, yeah, sure. What do you got? Yeah, okay. We rely again and again on what we think we know, what we think we feel, what everybody else tells us, and we neglect the truth of what God says. We go outside of his will. We have everything we need right now in Christ, and all of our sin is going to be born out of distrust 
It's going to be born out of reaching outside of his will. Sin, and they say now that, you know, this generation doesn't have a language for sin. It doesn't. Let me just, let me make it simple for you. Sin is a choice outside of the will of God, plain and simple. And it's born out of distrust. It's saying, I have a desire or a need, and I can make the case that most desires or needs are innately not harmful, it's the, are not bad in their, in, their root cause, in their root desire. It's the way we fulfill the desires that are bad. But it's saying, I have this desire, and rather than fulfill it the way God says I ought to, I'm going to see what my friend thinks, or what my magazine thinks, or what my horoscope thinks. Not what the Bible thinks. You know, the, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I read the Word of God and the deeper I study, the more true it becomes, the more real it is, the more clearly unavoidable the truth of the pages of Scripture are. And so we sin, we disobey. And we're going to see what happens and what happens still. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. So we talk about the effects of sin in the garden, and we say, what happened? And we say, we were disconnected from God. And that's true. But you know what the first disconnection was? It was from ourselves. We have immediately a sense of shame, a sense that there is something wrong with me. And every human being alive right now falls under that reality. And you can be here and you can have no sense at all. of. You could say I'm, you're an atheist. It doesn't matter. Deep down inside, every single one of us realize that there is a profound sense of something wrong. That we have a longing. See, everybody wants to be loved unconditionally. And we're convinced it's impossible We're convinced that if people know us, they can't possibly love us because we are fundamentally unlovable. And all of society's problems, all of our problems, every choice we make is an attempt to make that wound less and less, to cover that up, to distract us from the sense that something is wrong. And and you can do all kinds of things that might for the moment distract you or numb you but at the end of the day when you're all alone it comes back stronger than ever the first effect of sin is shame the first connection is a disconnection with ourselves it's an identity crisis this tells us everything we need to know about human nature for all the good that psychology and psychiatry and sociology and anthropology and all the fields of study that have merit, this profoundly and deeply explains to us the source of all of our problems. In fact, when you look at somebody, and this will be helpful to you as a Christian who, you know, if somebody's extremely arrogant, it's because they're deeply insecure. That's the root of that. Because they don't feel good. And so sometimes people mistreat others or they project a sense of themselves that's not true because they're wounded and will try anything to avoid feeling wounded. Jesus came to meet us in that wound. See, we can't imagine what it must have been like to not feel this disconnection. I mean, to 
to not feel this connection before the fall, to be in that kind of relationship with God. I think we get glimpses of it in Christ. You know, you ever have that, that moment where just everything fades away. It doesn't matter what you're going through. God just overwhelms you with his presence, and you're just, there's just a glimpse of that joy. But on this side of eternity, I think it's more of the longing than the realization of it. But we see glimpses of it. To just be in his presence. I love Psalm 27.4. There's one thing I ask from the Lord that's only I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. It's a description of heaven, right? That deep down inside where I long more is to just be in his presence. To just know that I'm loved. To just know that I am okay. Verse 8. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? This is where I get excited, right? I don't know how many times I read through the Bible through Genesis and, and missed this, and, and maybe some of this you got, maybe some of this you missed, but it is, and again, I'm gonna, I'll teach, I'll do something deeper, but it's incredible what's here. Just in Genesis chapter three. This is what theologians call a theophany, or more precisely, a Christophany. These words describe the appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament prior to Christ coming in the flesh. Remember who Christ is now. Read Colossians 1. Read Hebrews 1. In the beginning, he was with God and he was, and he was God. He didn't just show up on the stage 2,000 years ago. He is the Word made flesh. The description of the Lord walking in the garden after Adam and Eve have sinned. This is Christ stepping into history to seek and save the lost. That means it's his mercy and grace. That means when man sin, God immediately loves us and has a plan in place for salvation. It means that when sin showed up, Christ showed up. We see his mercy and his grace. But it also shows another disconnection because there was no hiding before. See, God didn't call out because he didn't know where they were. He called out to bring to their attention the altered state of the relationship, that things had fundamentally changed, that instead of, instead of a desire to be in God's presence and an intimacy with always having that closeness, now the desire was, I want to hide from God. See, this stuff isn't just an explanation of back then. It's an explanation of right now. Why do we avoid the things we know we need when we're doing the wrong thing? You know how many times I've heard people say, yeah, once I get my life together, I'm going to go back to church. What does that mean? That's like me saying once I get in shape, I'm going to go to the gym. But we hide. We hide from the very thing. The very thing that can heal us. And the enemy's fine with that. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. 
I hid from you, God, because I know now that there is something wrong with me. And he said, who told you, verse 11, that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Now things are going to go quickly from bad to worse. I mean, you see, the, you see the whole thing. They had everything they needed, relationship with God, with each other, everything they needed. And the enemy comes in with the lies. And the straight-on lies don't work, and the manipulation doesn't work, so then the seed of discontentment, that begins to work. And then we begin to rely on what we think we know or what our neighbor knows. And we forget about what God tells us, the truth that lives inside of us. And we're discontent. And then we become disobedient because of our distrust. And then here we are now, all disconnected. Some of us more than we ever have. A lot of D words, ready? Disordered desire, which is sin. Disordered desire. Desire in itself is probably not bad. The disordered desire. Sin causes distrust, which causes disobedience, which causes disconnection. That's our problem. Human beings feel shame and guilt. We're disconnected from ourselves. And sometimes, you know, I, I, I run into Christians, and they, like, they think that in order to like, elevate God, they have to like, you know, oh, I'm worthless, I'm garbage. Da, da, da. Yeah, that's not. That's like the monks that beat themselves to... That's not a spiritual mature attitude. That's not what that means. And like I said, even the people who have a higher sense of self comes from insecurity. Jesus died for you. Don't diminish your value. Amen. You're valuable because God loves you, because he sent his son to die for you. The Bible says, while we were sinners. So don't you dare call yourself worthless that's an offense to God and people do it and they think they're being spiritual and it's wrong have a healthy sense of who you are in Christ Amen. you're an image bearer of the holy God of the universe sin tarnished that, in, that image but Christ came to restore that image so after we're disconnected from ourselves, we're no longer seeking to be with God. Now we're hiding because we're disconnected from God. And now we're going to see that disconnection is going to quickly begin to affect our relationship with each other. Because if you don't know who you are and you're disconnected from God, it's a matter of time before all bets are off and we are where we are. See, whether you're here and you're a Christian, whether you're a non-Christian, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, this stuff is undeniable. We know it in our gut to be true. And so what happens? Verse 12. The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I mean... Not only is he blaming the woman, but he's like, oh, the woman you gave me, hello, kind of your fault, God, I'm just saying. And we laugh and we're like, oh, Adam, you're, you know, but how, we do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not my fault, God, it's, it's this person's fault. Oh, it's, it's a temptation. Oh, da, 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 da. <laughs> he blames her, he blames God. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? She's like, you're right, it's my fault, I'm sorry. No, no, that's not what she does. 
The serpent deceived me. It's the snake's fault. And I ate it. No, I looked at it. It seemed I leaned on my own understanding. No, it's somebody else's fault. You see immediately how far we've gotten from the will of God. You see how quickly it happens. And now comes God's justice. Now comes the curse. And I know we would like the word justice nowadays. We don't, we don't like that. Like we think goodness is, is not justice. Let me explain this to you. If your kid got hit by a drunk driver and that drunk driver went before the judge and the judge said, you know, I want to be a good judge. In fact, I want to be known as a merciful judge so you can go free. You would not say that person was a good judge. In fact, you would say they were a horrible judge. So justice is in God's nature. Just like love and mercy and grace and truth and perfection, they are parts of who he, who he is. He cannot not be just. And his, his view and his, his standard of justice is the standard. There are some people who aren't Christians because they don't think it's true. There are other people who aren't Christians because they don't think it's good. But, and maybe their expression of it or what's been shown to them wasn't good. But it's always good. It's the standard of good. I love when tr- people try to make ethical arguments against God's existence. What are you grounding that? Where, where, do, where does that come from? Because deep down inside, he's just... He's good, and what he does is what a just and good God does. And so he said to the servant, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals who crawl on your belly. I'm going to read, read through some of this quickly. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. In other words, there's going to be a battle now between good and evil, between the spirit and the flesh, between man and the enemy between Christ and Satan. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing bearing very severe. With painful labor you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be your husband, he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit you must not eat from, curses the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it. It will produce thorns and thistles. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Until you return from the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now that work, now that caretaking and work was precursed, by the way. It was a good thing. Now what was given to you as a mission, as something for you to be proud of and enjoy, now that's going to be a burden. Husband and wives, oh yeah, you guys, you're not going to communicate. Most rewarding relationship in our lives most opportunity for spiritual growth in our lives, but also the example of how communication is absolutely impossible. Because I, I said in the first service, and if anybody does this, I want some of the money. I said the next thing we need to create is like a, a marriage app, a, a app on our phone that's a marriage communication app. And when somebody says something, the app can go, she didn't really say that. What you just heard, that wasn't really what she said. And what he said, that wasn't really what he meant. And can kind of decipher, and we can avoid all the problems. Because we hear things, and we, we think things, and, and the enemy gets in there, and half the time, it's not true, and the person didn't intend it that way. And We know. Why? Because it's the curse. Because there's enmity. This affects all of us, every day. 
And if we don't know that we're called, that Christ came to reverse the curse, that we're called to live out lives that are, that are no longer under the curse, that we're called to begin to live the kingdom of heaven on this earth now, but life from this point on becomes a battle. It's the age-old story. It's the origin of every story. We think, you know, you think that TV and literature, you think that all that comes about, and, then, and that informs how we feel. No, that's just an outflow of deep down inside, there's a battle between good and evil from the beginning. And what do we long for? A hero. Somebody good to come and make things right. That's deep down in us. And that's what Jesus did. He was our hero. He, came, he is our hero. He came to make things right. He came to win the battle. This conflict between humanity and God. Between the natural world, curses the ground. Between our battling with each other, brother against brother. We're soon going to see the first children to be born under the curse. A brother kills his own brother. And then... Death enters the picture, to, death, to dust you will return. Remember when the enemy said you will not surely die? In our lives, when temptation comes and when we hear that voice, remember that. Remember that lie, you will not surely die. And look at the effect that still to this day lingers in each one of us. See, we still do this. We still believe the enemies. We still want the shiny apples. We still neglect our relationship with him. And when things go bad, we still blame each other. And we blame him. And we fail to look in the mirror and to see that we often listen to the enemy more than we listen to God. See, it can be discouraging when we see that pattern of sin that began with Adam and Eve that can continue in our own lives. But the story is not over. See, that Jesus, he's on the scene. And so look what God does. Don't miss this. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Immediately when sin came on the scene, Christ was on the scene. And immediately, God, in his justice, makes a way. Amen. And there's an, there are, there's an effect. There are repercussions. But this is grace. This is mercy. This is him saying, let me cover them up so they don't feel as naked and as ashamed. Let me provide some temporary comfort, a respite for the curse until it can be fully undone. Let me give them something they absolutely don't deserve. But let me do it because of its expression of my love. How many times have you read through Genesis 3 and missed a lot of this? And the Lord God said, this is my favorite. The Lord God said, verse 22, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. 
You know what happened there? Don't miss what happened there. Because I've heard people say, it was judgment that kicked us out of the garden. And while that's not entirely untrue, that was not primarily judgment. That was mercy and grace. Did you miss it? Right in verse 22. It says, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. What God was doing was eliminating the possibility that we would live forever apart from God, disconnected from him, filled with shame and guilt and hiding and in conflict with each other, and we would have remained under the curse. That was mercy and grace. That was God's love in action in a profound way, saying, no, there must be a way. It would have been just for God to leave us in that state forever. It would have been just for him to say, here's what you wanted. But the gospel is that we got the opposite of what we deserve. The gospel is because we were sinners. This is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we deserved wrath, Jesus made a way. I don't know. I know, you know, now people say different things. This is not my interpretation. This is not our denominational interpretation. This is the word of God. This is Christianity. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died in our place. We were guilty, and now we're not guilty. It's not a program so we feel better. It's not an ethical improvement so we have a better life and make better decisions. It's a way that God said, you deserve death and instead I'm going to give you life. Listen, I just want to say this. this I want to read the scripture and I want you to close your eyes and keep your eyes open. Just listen. Just listen to these words. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, to not be naked and ashamed, to no longer hide. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not meeting up, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more. As you see the day approaching, I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way up. In other words, church, let us draw near to God. Let us us realize that the the curtain has been torn. The curse has been broken. And once again, we've been given work to do. We have a divine calling once again. 
So don't be distracted by the shiny apples that lead to death. We have a week to press in. This is a week of fasting and prayer. Not a week of empty spiritual disciplines. Not a week for you to compare what everyone else is doing, but a week to press in. Prayer and fasting is an opportunity to disconnect from the things we ought to disconnect from, to connect deeper to the things we need to, to Christ. Draw near to God. Every, every day this week, the church will be open for prayer during the day. This sanctuary, you can come in and pray. Every night, there's a different opportunity. And I know you, we can't do everything, but don't make an excuse to not do something. And I'll tell you this, and you can take it as a mild rebuke. I don't care if you like me because I love you. And because I don't want you to be disconnected from the things that give life. Don't make lame excuses. Don't make lame excuses for why you can't take part in prayer and fasting in some way, to connect in some way, to disconnect in some way from all that other stuff, to enter into a deeper relationship with Jesus. That's why we exist. We don't come here to play church. We don't come here to pretend. We come here because we want more and more of him. And so I know we make time for the gym. I obviously don't make time for the gym, but some of you do. I need to. I'm working on that. But we make time in our lives for the things that are important. We can spend hours watching our TV shows. We can, we can do all the things we want to do. And yet when there's an opportunity to press in, we have all these reasons we can't. Don't do that. And I say this, it's not for me, it's for you. I say it because I love you. Don't miss out. Don't allow the enemy to say, you'll not surely die. Press in. Press in. Our prayer, our desire, each one of us should be more of you, Lord. And so as the altars are open, as we close in worship, and I'm not going to dismiss us after. I'm not going to pray out. This is your opportunity to spend as much time as you want. But I just want to pray, and you can stand, you can sit, you can come to the altar as, as we worship. I just pray, Lord, let this not just be another sermon, not just be a motivational speech, but it be the power of your word that's living and active to penetrate our hearts, to change us from within, God. Lord, meet us here in this place. God, have your way in and through us. People who are at home watching, people who will watch this after the fact, God, speak deeply to each of us, God. Help us to trust you more. Take the things away that we ought not to have, God, and let our hands be open to the things you want to give us, God. We love you, Lord. We want more of you, Jesus. God, thank you for making a way. Thank you for loving us with an extravagant love, with a love that breaks strongholds, with a love that overcomes death. Thank you, Lord, that every prayer every prayed is answered in Jesus. We love you. Have your way.